Hello, friends. This is Pastor Pierce Eaton, and you're listening to First and Foremost, a podcast where we give you teaching and tools to make Jesus Christ first and foremost in your life. So uh, we're launching into Advent series leading up to Christmas. The word Advent means the arrival of a notable person or event. And we call this season of the church in the weeks leading up to Christmas, we call it Advent because it is the time that God's people stop to celebrate, we stop and we celebrate the arrival of King Jesus. We do it in two ways. Advent is, is not just looking toward the birth of Christ that happened around 2,000 years ago. We also look at his second Advent his second coming. So we look at the birth of Christ, but we also know that Jesus is coming back to make all things right, and so we look toward that as well. And so that's what we're going to be going through over the next few weeks with an emphasis on Christmas. You guys know that I like Christmas a lot. You guys know that I would decorate my house in July um, if you guys didn't think I was weird, but unfortunately we, we hold back on that and decorate November 1st. So, um, so our house has been decorated for a while. Some of you haven't decorated your home for Christmas yet, and that's okay. All right. <laughs> um, hey, so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. Every passage that we cover during Advent is going to be familiar to you because it's the story of Christ's birth. But we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, and I want to highlight something that you maybe haven't really noticed in the angel's encounter with Joseph. And so I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word, Matthew 1, 18 through 23. The title of our sermon today is The Delight of Christmas. Look with me at verse 18. God's word says, Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Let's pray. Father, as we have read your word, Lord, we ask that you speak to us this morning, that we have ears to hear you, and that we respond, not with hard hearts, but right now, Lord, that you you peel away the callous, soften our hearts to see the truth of who you are and your goodness and your salvation through Christ. Help us to see that this morning. Help us to respond to that. Help us to be changed by that as we are sent into our world, we pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Please take a seat. I've got three points for you this morning. And the first one is Christmas is an indictment before it's a delight. Christmas is an indictment before it's a delight. Now, I know that some of you are wondering what indictment means. So, and the definition of indictment is a formal charge or accusation of a serious crime. That's what indictment is. So Christmas is a formal charge or accusation of a serious crime before it's a delight. Now I want you to look with me again at verse 21 so we can see why. Verse 21 says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. This is the reason why Christ came. This is the reason why Christ left his eternal throne in the heavenly realm and came down to earth, and that is to save you and me from our sins. Christmas is an indictment. For if we were not sinful, then Christ need not come. But since Christ has come, is a declaration of our sinfulness. To illustrate this, um, when I was 11 years old, um, so my, my family, we grew up doing Christmas big. We love Christmas, um, still do. And when I was 11 years old, I received a Christmas gift that I still remember to this day. It wasn't big. It was in my stocking. And normally, normally my stocking gifts were like socks and toothbrush and underwear and maybe a little bit of candy and maybe a small toy. But this year, at 11 years old, I got something I had never received in my stocking before. It was a bar of deodorant. <laughs> at, at which point, I asked Santa, who was in the room with me. Um, <laughs> no, I asked my parents. I, 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 I remember asking my mom and saying, um, was this supposed to be in my two older brothers? Stocking? Because they got deodorant every year. So I, I was like, I think there's confusion here. And my mom's response was, no. You're supposed to receive that deodorant because you need to start wearing deodorant. <laughs> At which point, I, my whole life flashed before my eyes, right? I'm like, have I been that stinky kid? You know, is this why I don't have a girlfriend? You know, it's like you start racking your brain. Like, what? If, if I've been the kid all this time that everyone's been holding their nose around and I've needed deodorant. See, receiving deodorant in my stocking was a statement about my stench. Receiving deodorant was an indictment upon my smell. In a similar way, um, in a similar way, Christmas is an indictment. 
if we were not sinful, then Christ need not come. This is crucial. And we have to recognize Christmas as an indictment before it will ever truly become a delight. Before we can embrace the joy of Christmas and before we can delight in the sweet birth of Christ, we must first come to grips with the bitterness of our sin and brokenness. In order to rejoice at the coming of our Savior, we have to recognize that we need one. It's not sweet unless you need a savior. Christmas is an indictment before it's a delight because Jesus came to save us from our sins and the payment and penalty for. If we fail to recognize our own sinfulness and brokenness, then the birth of Jesus will just be an insignificant event. That's all it will be. We'll treat the birth of Christ like any non-believer who sees it as some fanciful story. However, if we grasp our own sin and brokenness, and if we understand our utter inability to save ourselves, then the birth of our Savior becomes a sweet delight. I hope that as you prepare your heart for Christmas um, over this holiday season, over the coming weeks, that you not get caught up entirely in all the frills. I think they're awesome things. I love all the frills of Christmas. But we have to first come to grips with the reality of Christmas. The birth of a Savior means you need one. We have to recognize that. The arrival of our Savior is only beautiful if we recognize we need saving. Now, this is a great, um, this is a great, just knowing this truth, is a great discipleship tool for parents to their little kids. So when you, when you talk about Christmas, you don't talk about Christmas as um, some fanciful story. You talk about it as the reality of the indictment before it's the delight. We help our children, we help them know why Jesus came. We don't just talk about it as some cool story about a birth. Also, this is a great evangelistic opportunity because a lot of people are willing to talk about Christmas during this time of year. But if we understand the birth of Jesus is only significant because of Easter, then we can highlight that as we talk to our coworkers and our friends about Christmas things. We can pull out the idea that Jesus came because we need to be saved. It's an easy transition to a gospel opportunity and conversation. Christmas is an indictment before it's a delight. Point two this morning is that sin is bitter. Sin is bitter. When... Um, I started drinking coffee at five years old. Karen says that's why I have a lot of hair on my chest. (laughs) (laughs) 
Even though that was what I told myself when I was a teenager. Um, I was like, yeah, I'm going to drink it because I want hair on my chest. Um, (laughs) No, I wasn't really drinking coffee when I was five. I mean, I did drink coffee, but it was like 90 to 95% milk and sugar and with a bleep of coffee, right? I know some of you still drink your coffee that way. And so the thing about that is that I drank coffee, sort of, it's, you could call it coffee, um, that way because um, I couldn't handle the bitterness of coffee. As a five-year-old, I couldn't handle it, but I liked the flavor of it, so I had to water it down in other ways to, to cut the bitterness out. And then when I became a teenager, I eventually grew to where I could drink coffee like a normal human. It's like a little bit of cream and a little bit of sugar. I as I drank coffee and and got a little bit older, I got um, more desensitized to the bitterness. And then I got to college. Nothing will teach you how to drink black coffee more than an empty pocketbook, right? When you don't have any money to buy cream or sugar, but your roommate makes coffee, then you drink it black. And I got used to that. And the more that I, I drank black coffee, in fact, the first time I drank black coffee, it, it tasted absolutely terrible. And then the more that I, I drank black coffee, the more I got used to it, the more I got desensitized to the bitterness. And that's really how bitter foods work. Anything that's bitter, at first, that first gulp, that first taste, it's, it's almost, you're kind of caught off guard. But the more that you ingest it, the more it gets normal. The more desensitized you get to it, the more common it gets, the less you recognize its bitterness. Well, I believe, and I bring this up because this is the same thing with sin. At first, we feel convicted and repulsed by some sin that we commit. But as we commit it over and over And over, our heart becomes calloused. We become desensitized to the bitterness of our sin. Sin, to define it, is anything that we think, do, or say that defines God's good design or laws. Anything. Romans 3.23 declares plainly for us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You have, I have, everyone has, except for one person. We'll get to him in a minute. We all have. And because of our sin, we have been cut off with right relationship with God. We have rebelled against him. And so because of our rebellion against him and his good causes, we justly deserve punishment. We justly deserve separation from him. We justly deserve death. The effects of sin uh, upon our relationship with God have broken our relationship with God. They have broken, sin has broken um, God's good design for our lives, and it has broken our ability to draw near to the well that, of the water that satisfies because satisfaction can only truly come from God. We might recognize that sin, or at least theologically we understand that sin does that, but did you know sin has greater effects than just that? 
So there are personal effects of sin. Uh, we become, the Bible tells in, in Romans six seventeen that we become slaves to sin. Romans 1, 18 through 23, which is a beautiful passage of scripture, states that sin distorts our perception of reality, our hearts become darkened, and we deceive ourselves. Ephesians 4, 19 says that sin leads us to become calloused and insensitive to the things of God and the things of love. Sin makes us more self-centered. Sin makes us more self-absorbed. It produces a sense of restlessness in us because no matter how much we get it or how much we do it, it never satisfies. So we always need just a little bit more. There are great personal effects, consequences to sin, but also it affects us socially too. So sin has great social consequences and effects. Um, It leads to a pattern of competition and comparison. And some of us in this room have... uh, a real problem with comparison. Sin breeds apathy in our hearts towards others. Goodness, we find ourselves struggling to empathize and genuinely care for others because we're so self-absorbed. Everything in life is about us. It degrades our ability to be humility or with, to be humble. It degrades our ability to live with humility. We suddenly find ourselves primarily concerned about our personal desires and our reputation and our opinions and our perspectives. We're only interested in others as long as it serves us. Sin leads us to reject genuine authorities in our lives because if our security is found in our possessions or our accomplishments or what people think of us, then any outside authority is a threat to that, including God. And socially, sin ultimately damages our ability to love others sacrificially. Sin has great consequences. Sin leads us into a place that is dark, difficult, lonely, unsatisfied, and cut off from God and his all-satisfying presence. Sin is bitter. I want you to understand something. Some of you, as I was talking about sin, couldn't help but think about other people. God's not saying this to someone else. We can easily sit here and think about sin, um, spend our time thinking about sin, and do nothing but think about others, but I want to tell you that it's only a sinful and deceitful heart that will think entirely of other people's sins before we ever think of the self. Psalm 51, 17 says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. Sin is bitter. We have to understand that. Because the sweetness of salvation in Christ will never be sweet unless we understand the bitterness of sin and our brokenness, which is point three this morning. Salvation is sweet. Sin is bitter. Salvation 
is sweet. Now, I'm not calling you out because everyone's this way, so let's, let's do this. If you plan to eat something, some kind of sweet over the Christmas holiday season, raise your hand. Okay, so don't feel bad. You can look around the room. All of us are doing that, right? <laughs> Even when the doctor tells us not to, we're like, I mean, but it's Christmas. <laughs> so uh, yesterday, um, the Young Families uh, Sunday School group did a Christmas cookie social. And boy, that was good. I ate like 14 cookies, um, as did all of us. Stop judging. We all did it together in the name of Jesus. That means the calories don't count, right? No. <laughs> um, so we are in the season of sweets. So there was a survey done this year with 2,000 respondents about Christmas holiday sweets. 76% of Americans said that they plan to eat sweets over the holiday season, which just means that uh, 24% of them are going to end up doing something they didn't plan to do. Because I think 100% of Americans eat sweets over the holiday season. 52% uh, of respondents said that eating sweets is their favorite part of the, Christ the Christmas holiday season. That means 52% of you in this room, that's your favorite part of Christmas is eating sweets. Oh, goodness. Okay, so this is the part I wanted to share with you. This is why I'm, I'm sharing this. To make you, I'm really just, I'm sharing this to make you feel better, okay? Not to make you feel bad. The survey revealed the average American, buckle your seatbelt, eats 26 cookies, 25 pieces of candy, 12 pieces of pie, 13 brownies, 13 cupcakes, and 13 caramels over the Christmas holiday season on average. <laughs> you said, who was counting? Evidently, these people were. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, goodness, I know, that's right. So sweets and Christmas just go together like peas and carrots, right? <laughs> they do, though. Christmas and sweets go together. So you might have some kind of tradition with Christmas sweets. Uh, one of the traditions we always had growing up is my dad on Christmas morning would make homemade donuts. Yeah, it's pretty cool. They were always really, really good. We loved them, and he only ever made them for Christmas morning. That was it. Except for there was one year that he, weirdly enough, decided to put mustard in the glaze. Those weren't good that year. <laughs> but the rest of the years, they were great. Um, I don't know. We can ask my dad one day when he's here. Um, but uh, that was always our tradition. Maybe you have some kind of tradition on Christmas Day or around the Christmas holiday season that you make some kind of special sweet, you know, cinnamon rolls or some kind of cake or whatever it may be. You make some kind of sweet. And uh, did you know the reason why we make sweets on Christmas? It's not just because we like them and because we're Americans. Um, there's actually... A reason. See, when we look back in history, we see Christians have been making sweet baked goods on Christmas Day for as long as we can look back. Did you know that? In fact, it's really interesting 
because this is something that's unique to Christmas. So we, we don't have, like, we don't associate sweet baked goods with Easter. We, in America, we do it with, like, eggs and candy, but we don't really have other Christian holidays that we so closely associate with sweet baked goods. It's really interesting. And what's really cool is that it's near universal. The, the, the message of Christ uh, by, by God's grace and glory has made its way around the entire world. We have still unreached people groups to reach with the gospel message, but um, there are the majority of uh, people groups, uh, ethnic groups in the world have, have a gospel witness there. And uh, around the world, we see that Christians around Christmas time make baked sweets. It's interesting. And as far as we can tell as historians, we don't, we don't fully know exactly why, but as far as we can tell, baked sweets were traditionally made on Christmas to celebrate and signify the beautiful and sweet reality that God has not left us in our hopeless estate. God has sent a savior and salvation through him is sweet. Parents um, of little ones, this is, or teenagers, this is an opportunity. Knowing this about baked sweets is an opportunity for family discipleship. When you make baked goods with your kids for Christmas, you don't just make baked goods. You talk about the salvation that comes through Christ and you point to him as you make baked sweets. It's a good opportunity to teach our kids that Jesus came in the flesh. He lived the life uh, just like you and I, except without sin. Tempted the way that you've been tempted, tried in the way that you've been tried, gone through hardships in the ways that you've gone through hardships, and yet he never sinned. And since he never sinned, he didn't deserve the penalty and payment for sin, which the Bible tells us is death and separation from God. Yet he willingly went to the cross on your behalf, dying the death and paying the penalty that you deserve to pay. So that by faith in what he's done, you could be declared righteous or right or be restored back into right relationship with God, that he overcame sin and death for you. And this is declared through the resurrection, that on the third day, he was, he was buried at, on the day of his crucifixion, and on the third day, he rose from the grave, declaring his victory over sin and over death. And now, you and I get to receive life and freedom from the bitterness of sin right now. We can be restored back into God's good design for our lives and we can experience true satisfaction in this life that only comes from God. And then the beautiful fruit of that is that this, when this life ends, that we get to still be in good, satisfying relationship with God for all of eternity. And all of this is received by faith, not by something you do, by faith. Romans 8, verses 1 and 2. Romans 8 is probably maybe my favorite chapter of the Bible. 
Romans 8, 1 and 2 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. By faith in Christ, we are set free from the bitter reality and consequence and effects of sin. Now, that doesn't mean still on earth, even though we repent and follow Christ, there's still sometimes um, earthly consequences to our sin, but there are not eternal consequences to our sin because Jesus has paid that for us. And through, through life in him and by the spirits indwelling in us, we can walk in a reality where we're no longer enslaved to sin and encapsulated by the bitterness thereof. My prayer is that you recognize that this Christmas. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus, then let today be the day. And if you have, which the majority of us have in this room, then I want to challenge you with something. Can I do that? I've already did, I did that last week. You're like, Pierce, you're gonna challenge us again? You did that last week, you had to put a whole light board over here. Well, it's the same challenge. I want to challenge you to share the sweetness of salvation with others this Christmas season. Share the sweetness of salvation with others. The Christmas season is one of our best times to be evangelistic. This is why we launched this Sent to Shine campaign at this time. How many people do you know uh, do some kind of celebration for Christmas? Probably almost everyone you know. And yet... Many of them have no clue why. Maybe they've heard in church when they grew up or their grandma told them about how Jesus was born or something like that, but they don't really know why. And actually, I'm hoping over the next few weeks, I'm gonna unpack things like how I unpack the sweets. Uh, I'm gonna unpack several different traditions that we do on Christmas, all of which or most of which point to salvation in Christ. Most of us don't even know that. We've never actually researched the reasons why we decorate a tree. We've never actually researched why we give gifts. There's a reason for all of that. Christmas is steeped in beautiful Christian tradition, and we can unpack some of that over the next few weeks. But all of that can be a bridge to a gospel encounter. If someone's decorating their house for Christmas, awesome. What does Christmas mean to you? Let's hear what they have to say. And as we encounter them and as we engage them, God will open up the opportunity for us to draw it back to the truth of Christmas. So as we're doing our Sent to Shine challenge, I want you to be actively praying and looking for opportunities to share the gospel message. Use Christmas as a trampoline to bounce you on and carry the gospel message. God will open the door for evangelism. Uh, he'll open the door for a gospel encounter. If we're praying for it, if we're, if we're really seeking, if we have our eyes open, you'll start to see them everywhere. I know some of you started praying beginning last week for that. Uh, I've even spoken to some of you and you're like, I've been praying this week and I haven't, I haven't seen, God hasn't given me that encounter yet. And uh, he will. He's going to, I promise you. God loves to answer that prayer. And I think as you continue to pray, you're gonna see that 
you actually might have been given opportunities this week. You just didn't have the eyes to see it yet. God opens up opportunities for us to share who he is with others all the time. And it may not be a gospel encounter from beginning to end where we get to communicate the, the you know, creation at the beginning and the fall and all the way to the end where we get to talk about the, the final glorious return of Christ. It's not like this grand, uh, you know, one hour long telling of the gospel. It may just be something quick and short that's like three sentences. But God will open up opportunities for us if, we're, if we have the eyes to see them. So I encourage you this week, look for opportunities as you talk about Christmas with others. And don't assume because they celebrate Christmas that they're a Christian. I told a story a couple weeks ago about how I would, uh, or I did this all the time on a college campus, I would engage college students and I would ask them what they believe and they almost always would say that they're a Christian. And I could have very easily said, oh, okay, well, since you're a Christian, like, you're going to meet you, Christian. I'm a Christian too. Well, let's go out there and reach people. But instead, I would, just, I would just ask the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? They didn't know what I believe at that point. And they would tell me whatever they thought, and almost all of them were completely wrong. They'd be like, yeah, you know, what it means to be a Christian is like, you just got to work really hard and be a good person, and then maybe you'll go to heaven. I'm like, what if I told you that's absolutely the opposite? of what it means to be a Christian. is <laughs> not what it means at all. And they'd say, what? Can I share with you what it means to be a Christian? Assuming that people are believers is not a good idea. Let's, let's use Christmas as a springboard uh, to share the good news of who Jesus is, that Christmas is an indictment before it's a delight, that sin is bitter, and that salvation is sweet, and it only comes by Jesus Christ. Stand with me. Let's pray. We're going to continue uh, worshiping. We're going to do so through music. Father, you are good and we thank you for your goodness, your, the, the sweet grace that we receive in Christ. We don't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. But Lord, we, we gladly receive it by faith. Lord, we ask as your people that you give us opportunities this week to declare who you are. Some of us are hesitant to do so. Some of us are, are calloused to the grace that we've received. And Lord, I, I just ask that you strip that away. Maybe, Lord, make us awareness, uh, aware of our bitterness, uh, the bitterness of sin in our lives so that we begin to see the sweetness of your salvation all the more. Father, maybe, maybe we, we need to just go back and have an encounter with you again, to open your word, to spend time in prayer, silence, solitude, whatever it may be. Lord, if we've grown callous to the idea of praising who you are to others and sharing who you are with others, then Lord, I just ask that you, you turn our hearts towards you this week so that we get excited about the opportunity of proclaiming the truth of who you are. Father, we ask that you open up opportunities with our coworkers, with our friends, with our neighbors, with the people who are at the little league field with us or 
wherever we may be, in, in, in the line in the grocery store, Father, we know that you are already working in the hearts of people all around us, wooing them to yourself, and you're waiting for a faithful witness to step up and be obedient. Father, you told us the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And so, Lord, I ask that you send us out into the harvest, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.